0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. President Donald Trump has nominated Appeals Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court. William Cummings, writing in USA Today, sums up the coming nomination fight. Conservatives have argued that Democrats were prepared to oppose anyone Trump nominated, but that Kavanaugh is such a strong nominee, their efforts to block him are certain to fail. Liberals said Kavanaugh would shift the court sharply to the right that he would ensure a vote in Trump's favor if issues tied to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation ever came before the court. Those are some of the issues, of course, likely to be litigated in the Senate as the nomination process goes forward. We're going to talk about uh, the Supreme Court in general and this uh, this nomination in particular with uh, senior U.S. District Court Judge Ted Stewart Turning to him for analysis today, Ted Stewart is author of Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. Ted Stewart, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. appreciate you, uh, you being with us. Uh, explain to me again what senior means in your title.
1: Oh, After a, a federal judge has been on the bench for a certain period of time, they can either retire or they can continue as a judge and maintain a caseload and keep your law clerks and um, chambers and so on. Um, and you're assigned, in my case, 50 percent of the cases as, as an uh, of an active judge. And so um, it's uh, a status that simply reflects the fact that you've been a judge for a certain period of time and chose to to maintain uh, being a judge.
0: Mm. Um, so we talked oh, a few months ago about uh, Supreme Power, very interesting book. Um, y- you you must have watched the uh, retirement announcement of uh, Justice Kennedy and the nomination of uh, Appeals Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh with great interest. What do you think, just in general, here at the beginning about uh, Judge Kavanaugh?
1: Well, <clears throat> Judge Kavanaugh has a a, a very um, good reputation among uh, other. Federal judges, you know, we we don't get to know each other personally. There are enough of us who are scattered across the country that we we don't know each other on a uh, personal level. But but the reputation of, of some um, uh, emerge from from the mass, and and Judge Kavanaugh was one of those who was recognized, uh, has been recognized for some time as, as one of the the finest judges in America. But but Tom, you you you've kind of hit the whole. Point of, of why I wrote that, the book that you referred to. Isn't it interesting that America is focused so much on one Supreme Court Justice, that so many people watch with such great interest when Justice Kennedy announced that he was going to retire, that all of America waited with bated breath uh, this last Monday evening to see who was going to take his place? Um, to put so much significance on one nomination, and, and now, as we go forward this summer through uh, what will obviously be an incredibly heated um, hotly debated uh, nightly news covering every aspect of it over one Supreme Court nomination, I think is the the clearest evidence of how the Supreme Court has emerged as the the power that it has, and, and I guess the question should always be asked by your listeners, is that really good? Is it what was intended? <clears throat> is it healthy for America that so much apparently rides on one Supreme Court justice?
0: And for many years, right? Uh, the, the President Trump... For many years. President Trump's okay. not not alone. Presidents in recent years have wanted to nominate relatively young judges so that... The, their nomination, their nominee can have an effect for years and years to come. And as you say, uh, the Supreme Court um, arbitrates most areas of our lives now.
1: It does. It does, Tom. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, the only justice to the United States Supreme Court that was ever appointed who was from the state of Utah was George Sutherland, And his nomination was was somewhat typical of how it used to be. And that was, he was nominated one day, he was not even in the country, but his nomination was taken up by the Senate, and he was voted on and confirmed the same day. That's how it used to be. Um, But that is not how it is, it's not how it's been probably for the last 40 years. And of course you have some nominations that are so controversial, that you actually have the process now named after them. Of course, we're talking about the uh, the, the experience of, of Judge Bork, who was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Reagan, and he was what we now refer to as Bork in his nomination process, and his nomination was defeated. That's the modern way of doing things. Uh, I think the old way was perhaps uh, what was intended by the founders, when they said that the courts, the judiciary, would be the least dangerous of all the three branches
0: of government. So the founders had, of course, this idea of checks and balances, right? Um, Most certainly. Now, some people feel, I I don't know if you feel this way as as well, some people feel the Supreme Court's become too powerful. Of course, there's arguments on all sides. There's arguments about executive power and Congress ceding too much to the president. But maybe let's talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, Too much power, do you think, at this point?
1: Well, that's a very subjective question, and I would be answering purely from my own perspective, and that is yes, I think it is too powerful. Um, th- there was a, f- a famous statement by Justice Scalia yeah, in one of the last cases that he wrote uh, one of his rather stinging dissents in, and that was the, the Overfell decision dealing with same-sex marriage back in 2015. And he, he stated in that uh, dissent, he said, you know, he really didn't personally much care about the substance of the case, and that is what the marriage law says. But then he went on to say, and the exact quote was, it is of overwhelming importance, however, who it is that rules me. And in that statement, he was acknowledging that somehow or another the Supreme Court had assumed to itself such power that they, in effect, ruled America. Of course, that's not true in all instances, but it certainly is true in many And so so much of of the nation that we live in today has been, in fact, crafted by specific Supreme Court decisions. Uh, They impact every aspect of our lives at one time or another, it seems. And and, um, again, we're talking about nine lawyers. We're talking about the fact that we only need five of those nine to make a decision so in fact so much of america has been shaped and framed by five lawyers on the supreme court
0: hmm. and uh, the conservatives you know, they talk about judicial restraint they talk about uh, they decry activism um, it seems that uh, the supreme court's been very very important especially to the right uh, politically over the years and uh, you could you could see this as a big a big win this right for rightward uh, shift i wonder how that squares though some would say you really whether you're left or right what you really want if you're seeing the Supreme Court in very political terms and you know stipulating that Supreme Court has become very important in our lives is you want the Supreme Court to rule how you see things
1: huh. and when when one talks about judicial activism um, it, it really is a, t- a term that is not well defined and its meaning is not accepted across the board um, I think you you are hitting on the point that judicial activism to most people is when a judge or judges or justices real contrary to what you want, and therefore they're activist judges. Um, I think, you know, in order to, to carry on this kind of a conversation, we have to define our terms a little bit more precisely. I, I think, in, in my mind, an activist judge is one who makes a decision to some extent or another. sometimes primarily based upon his or her political philosophy or view of the world or what it, the world ought to be. Uh, on the other hand, a, a judge that is not necessarily activist is one who feels themselves bound by the language, uh, the text of the Constitution, or the language or text of, of a statute that they are asked to interpret. <clears throat> and and if, if we proceed with those two understandings of what an activist is, um, I, I think that will help us, uh, understand that that an activist judge uh, can be either conservative or liberal in their political philosophy and therefore rule uh, and make decisions uh, you know, in accordance with what they want the world to be. Um, and so an activist judge, again, is not a liberal, it's not a conservative, it's just somebody who makes a decision, uh, departing as, as much as they feel comfortable and getting away with from the actual language of the Constitution the Intent of the founders, or the language of a, of a statute passed by Congress.
0: I wonder. Um, you said you feel the Supreme Court is maybe the balance of power is imbalanced, and the Supreme Court has too much power at this point. Uh, can can that genie be put back in the bottle? Can there, can there be a rebalancing?
1: Tom, that that is truly an excellent question, and and I and I hate to keep coming back to my book, but I, but I will as people have read the book and then have commented to me and discussed it with me, sadly, many of them are, are frustrated because I really don't offer a conclusion or a suggestion as how the power of the Supreme Court can be um, put back, if you will, to what the founders intended. And I honestly don't have an answer other than, than this, which is not terribly satisfying to most, and it's if we if you care about how the Supreme Court uh, views itself, what powers it assumes to itself, and what decisions it will render, you have to be involved in the political process and make sure certain that you support a president that uh, you believe will appoint the type of justice you want, whether it be a, a more activist judge or a, a less activist judge. Uh, and you have to make certain that your senators are are going to be voting to confirm the type of judge of justice that you want. That really is about the only acceptable way of dealing with this going into the future.
0: so uh, it seems like maybe the if you believe as you do, the Supreme Court has too much power. less activist judges uh, appointed and uh, and then they defer more to Congress
1: the, Defer more to Congress, but most importantly, Tom, in in the big cases where they are interpreting the Constitution, they are they are more humble in, in in relying upon the founders' intent, the language of the Constitution, and the understanding of what our government was created to do, and that was to prevent tyranny by the government over the people. Um, that kind type of judge or justice will probably Sometimes defer to Congress. Sometimes defer to the president. Very often they will not because they will view an act of Congress or an act of the executive branch to be excessive and contrary to the Constitution.
0: Now this is all on a spectrum, right? And I'm I'm thinking I think we talked to you know in our previous conversation about this as well. I want to bring it up again now. Um, You know some people will say point for example to Brown versus Board of Education and other civil rights cases as an example of how we, we, in some cases, we don't want the Supreme Court to defer to, to Congress and to the, you know, to, to the local governments, because governments, uh, in, in those cases, from that point of view, are trampling on, on rights.
1: Absolutely. And and, and, you're, and you point to, to one of the very best examples of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Brown versus Board of Education was one of the most important decisions in the history of the country. It absolutely had to result in the outcome that it did. But there was a, a problem, and that is in deciding Brown versus Board of Education, they made a decision not based upon an interpretation of the Constitution, in this case the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, one of the Civil War Amendments, but rather on social science, on um, some studies that had been done indicating that the great harm to young African American children, um, because of of the the segregation and the discrimination that they were facing. If they had made a decision based upon what the those who passed the Fourteenth Amendment intended, they could have reached the same conclusion. But it would have been founded in the Constitution. As it was, many in the South looked at the decision, looked at the how the case was decided, and said, "You know, this is this is not based on a constitutional interpretation. This is based on some." Sociologi- sociological studies, that has no reason, or that, that does not demand that we comply with it. And that was one of the reasons, uh, uh, albeit probably a small part of the reason why so many in the South rejected Brown, and, and it took so long for integration to happen in, in schools uh, uh, as it was intended. But, but th- th- there is no doubt that, that Brown could have been decided on a strict construction, meaning relying on the language of the 14th Amendment and the intention of those in Congress who passed it and those in the state legislatures that ratified it. Um, and that would have been a better un- outcome had the Supreme Court uh, done the homework to uh, to reach the conclusion on that basis.
0: We just joined us. We're uh, talking with the senior U.S. District Court Judge Ted Stewart. He's author, among other books, of uh, Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. And we're talking about the Supreme Court on the occasion of uh, President Donald Trump nominating Appeals Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'd love to know what you think. Uh, Phone lines are open at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. Let's take a break. When we come back... Uh, Ted Stewart, I want to uh, I want to talk about originalism. I believe uh, Judge Kavanaugh has been described as an originalist, um, and in your book, you uh, you have some definitions, uh, originalism, and then the opposite. Uh, um, and I want to uh, uh, take a listen to uh, those definitions. Following this break.
1: Hey, I'm Jill Deacon, in for Tom Power. Gin Phillips came up with the idea for her thriller when she was visiting the zoo with her young son. She wondered what would she do if someone suddenly came in with a gun. Gin Phillips tests the limits of motherhood in her latest book, coming up on cue from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing access to the national forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more available online at explorelogan.com. This week on Undisciplined, we're going to introduce you to a researcher who studies how government salary raises impact corruption. After that, we'll talk to a scientist who's been researching ways to grow plants in space for more than 30 years. Think those things have nothing in common? Think again. Together, we're going to be talking about the importance of rethinking in research. The plant physiologist and the political scientist on Undisciplined, Friday at 2. You're listening to Access Utah. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about the Supreme Court, of course, a potential new justice on the Supreme Court with the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, before we get to originalism, um, Ted uh, Stewart, and by the way, we're talking with the Senior U.S. District Judge, uh, uh, Ted Stewart, uh, his most recent book is Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America so uh judge stewart uh I wonder what you what you think the effect of a justice Kavanaugh should he be confirmed uh, will be on on the court of course this is uh is seen by many as very important because justice kennedy has been seen as a swing boat on the on the court
1: well i i I think there has been a, a certain level of of um overwrought hysteria uh when it comes to the original uh Oh, reaction to the nomination of Judge Kavanaugh for this reason, I, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't sit around in the morning and say, "Well, you know, what should we decide today? Uh, what uh, what precedent should we overturn? You know, what case shall we use to impl- implement this uh, political agenda, etc." That's not how the process works. The process is much. Different from that, uh, cases have to make their way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has to decide which cases to take. Uh, there have to be four justices that agree to take any case to consider. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a much more prolonged and deliberate process than uh, than is being represented, I think, by, by many who are responding to the Judge Kavanaugh uh, nomination. Um, but in the end, <coughs> Justice Kennedy was a fairly consistent conservative vote, Uh, conservative in a sense of originalism, uh, in a sense of of, uh, deference to allowing the people of America to make the decisions in contrast to judges and justices. Uh, There are certain areas where he, however, departed from that conservative viewpoint uh, in the minds of some, and and those had primarily to do with the social issues. He Uh, defended uh, Roe versus Wade um, far more than I think those who originally supported his nomination expected him to. He was the deciding vote and and wrote the opinion uh, on the same-sex marriage case Oberfeld and and he has a, a, a few areas like that where some would say well he was the swing vote but as a general rule he was fairly consistent Uh, in many, many five-four decisions with the conservative bloc. Judge Judge Kavanaugh, if he becomes Justice Kavanaugh, I think most observers think that he will probably be in the same mold. Um, um, But one of the the most interesting things about uh, anyone who studies the Supreme Court who looks into the processes that led to the nomination of specific individuals And what was expected of those justices once they'd gone on the court and how they then voted over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it's rare that they ever turn out exactly how anyone expected. And so um, I'm not about to suggest what the court may be like in a few years after a Justice Kavanaugh, should he be confirmed, uh, has been on the court. And I don't expect, frankly, personally,
0: there will be much change. So, uh, I wonder about that change. There's you know, the, the in past years, especially from conservatives, there's been hand wringing. Right, but, uh, Justice Souter was a prime example, nominated by uh, a Republican president, and in in the view of some, um, started out as very conservative, viewed as conservative, and moved quite liberal. So, um,
1: <laughs> Justice Souter is one example justice Stevens is is another um Justice Stevens became one of the more um, uh, acknowledged um liberal if you will living constitutionalists is how i how I would describe them but but I think the shorthand is liberal um so so there have been several like uh, justice Souter and justice Stevens who uh turned out to be very different from what was expected but that's true on the other side too um Byron White was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Kennedy. Um, they were, were longtime friends, and, and Byron White turned out to be one of the, the more conservative members of the court, and, and perhaps to some worried he was a disappointment to the liberals and progressives of, progressives of America because he didn't always vote the way they expected him to as well. So it, it, it is, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, a little bit amusing to me for people to be speaking in absolute terms of of what uh, Justice Kavanaugh will mean to the court, how he will vote on specific issues, et cetera, Because I just don't think that is as, as certain as as some people um, are are, are surmising that it is.
0: Hmm. Still in uh, still today, I guess uh, you'd still believe that uh, there, there's been a whole cottage industry. Uh... Uh, you know, spring up, um, trying to, you know, uh, vet the nominees to such an extent that they could, they can guarantee, not maybe not guarantee, but to assure the president that uh, this nominee is going to stay where we think he's going to stay.
1: And you're absolutely right. In fact, I have a former law clerk of mine who is now a law professor uh, at a a, a, uh, law school, Mercer University, who with uh, several others, did an analysis of um, those top uh, names on uh, President Trump's 25 list, uh, did an analysis of all their writings, of, of all their speeches that were available and, and everything, and tried to surmise which one of these would be the most reliable uh, conservative originalist, if you will. Um, it it uh, It's interesting that... Uh, um, Judge Kavanaugh was not at the top of their list. He was not the one that, that those deemed to be the most uh, conservative. Uh, there uh, were others on that list who, who their analysis indicated would be. So I think that uh, that suggests that the president was not entirely uh, basing his decision on, on what he hoped they would be in terms of, of their a- adherence to the Constitution or the, uh, the language of the statute. Uh, but it's it is, as you say, a cottage industry, uh, but but i would I would not bet much money on the certainty of any of these analyses in the long run.
0: What if you could talk about that <clears throat> what what might um, I don't know, wrong words provoke, maybe um, produce? um changes over the years in in a judges i don't know outlook at least the outcomes you've sat on the bench for for many years what what might uh produce a, a shift like like that
1: well tom again an excellent question and one that that uh that perhaps i ought not to 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 be too honest about but i guess being blunt it's just that once one assumes a certain amount of power and influence, it's really hard to resist using it in different ways. And once you get on the Supreme Court, once you have that um, lifetime appointment with precious little that influences you outside of of your own personal philosophy, it becomes really difficult not to want to decide cases to craft uh, and America in in the the shape and form and, and uh, t- type of country that you want. It really is you know power in one's hand is is very difficult for most of us to to resist the temptation. And one of the great uh, tests I think of of any person who who is put in a position of power, whether it be an elected office, whether it be an appointed office, whether it be judicial, executive, or legislative, is to resist. The exercise of that power um, in ways that are, are not intended by the, the type of government we have, now. and most men and women have a hard time resisting that. I, I will say this: that one of the one of the, the things that I have come to understand after being on the bench almost nineteen years, and that is, I have to make, and I have made a lot of decisions that I didn't agree with, that I that I wish I did not have to decide in that way. But I felt I needed to, I had to, because either the Constitution or a law or just simple justice demanded it. And I think that um, if a judge or justice is examining their own decision-making, the extent to which they find themselves uncomfortable with a lot of their decisions, that tells you that they are, in my judgment, doing the right thing. But if they're always comfortable with every decision they make, if, if everything that they decide is exactly what they want it to be, in all likelihood, they're, they're perhaps being what I call the living constitutionalists. They are simply imposing their philosophy on the American people through their decisions.
0: We've received uh, an email from Steve. I want to, to uh, read this and get any comment from uh, Judge Stewart that uh, he would like to make. Um, let's see. So here's what Steve says. In addition to locking in a right-wing majority on the court for a generation, here are some other reasons Kavanaugh should not be approved. He will further politicize the court. His background is that of a committed Republican political operative who worked tirelessly in Washington and in in Florida and Bush v. Gore to install Bush and deny Al Gore the presidency. In six of the last seven presidential elections, the Democratic nominee won the vote, yet the Republican often took office on a uh, distinctly anti-democratic trend, which Kavanaugh enthusiastically abetted. Uh, Number two, Donald Trump, who's under investigation, should not be appointing the man who will uh, many— ...who may well judge his case. Moreover, from a guilty president's perspective, Kavanaugh is the perfect appointee. Kavanaugh has lately espoused the view that presidents are above the law and may not be bothered with civil and criminal legal charges while in office. This contrasts sharply with the view he held when uh, a Democrat held an in office... As indicated above, the third point Steve makes, Kavanaugh's opinions about the prerogatives of the president are fluid in a dangerously partisan way. When Democrat Bill Clinton occupied the office, Kavanaugh worked on the Ken Starr team, which hounded Clinton through most of his presidency. But now that we have a Republican president who may be charged with much more serious matters, including collusion with foreign power to secure the country's highest office, Kavanaugh claims the president is above the law. Finally, Kavanaugh's po- uh, poison fruit, says Steve, the product of a secret deal, retiring justice Kennedy and Donald Trump have a long relationship, which they concealed from the public. Kennedy's son was Trump's banker who lent the Trump Organization hundreds of millions of dollars. Trump and Kennedy secretly negotiated Kennedy's retirement on Trump's watch. Kennedy submitted a list of names of four judges, one of whom he insisted be appointed to his seat if he were to retire. Kavanaugh is one of those names. So now Supreme Court justices not only have lifetime tenure, but they also name their own successors. This is a terrible and anti-democratic trend, which must not be countenanced. It could not be more clear that Kavanaugh is a terrible appointee. That's uh, Steve. So, um, Judge Stewart, would you have any comment on any of those points?
1: No, I, I, yeah. I don't think there's anything that I can respond to there that would be appropriate.
0: Okay, I want to talk about, and by the way, uh, I would love to get to your comments as well, 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. I mentioned before the break, I want to get to this. Uh, so in your book, which, uh, by the way, is seven uh, supreme power, seven pivotal Supreme Court decisions that had a major impact on America. Um, you talk about originalism versus living constitutionalism. I wonder if you'd uh, talk a bit about both of those philosophies.
1: An originalist is is a judge or justice that <clears throat> that believes that um, predictability and stability. Uh, which is really important in the law. It's very important that people understand what the law means, what they can expect from their uh, elected officials, etc. Uh, and the and originalist believes that that is best obtained by relying uh, as much as possible on the language of the Constitution, the intent of the founders, um, and always using that as as a starting point. It's uh, a, a, a form of judicial philosophy, a form of decision making within the judicial branch that um, <clears throat> doesn't allow a, a great deal of, of um, exercise of, of your own personal viewpoint on matters you you, you you try again to to rely on the Constitution or in the case of of uh, interpreting a statute of what Congress intended. Uh, a living constitutionalist is someone who believes that, uh, the Constitution is good, it's important, but the world has changed in 225 years. The Constitution uh, must be interpreted flexibly to to meet the modern challenges um, that we face in America. And um, in order to uh, m- make certain that uh, justice is done, uh, sometimes you have to make a decision that perhaps would not be one that the Founders would have wanted you to make. So... Um, it's a bit more subjective, uh, the living constitutionalist framework for decision-making, uh, and it results in sometimes um, unknown outcomes, but of course even originalists result in uh, outcomes that are not predicted as well. But I, I, that, I, that, I think, is a fair representation of, of the two, as, as I understand them, and as I think are, it is a fairly well-accepted uh, definition of the two.
0: And uh, uh, popular labels for each of those is uh, left and right, right, conservative, uh, liberal, yeah, or
1: conservative and liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- that, those are the shorthand versions. Uh, yes, you're right.
0: No, the the originalists will argue, living constitutionalists. Uh, you're just uh, you're prone to the danger is you're making it up as you go, right? You're you're not uh, you're you're not going back to the original text. I guess living constitutionalists would say that one of the weaknesses of the originalist uh, point of view is that. Some things just aren't talked about in the Constitution any way, shape or form.
1: Oh, and nor could it ever have been contemplated by the founders, you know, what what kinds of questions uh, would confront a judge or justice today. Um and, and both sides have, have great arguments to defend them. Uh, you know, I I have I prefer one over the other, but I certainly understand why in some cases a, a judge or justice might say, you know, I I've just got to be a bit more flexible in my decision making. I, mean, I I face cases like this all the time, particularly in the area of interpreting the, the Fourth Amendment and what is meant by a, a, a searching seizure that could result in certain evidence in a criminal case being excluded. Um, one, for example, I dealt, with, I dealt with some years ago when the question was whether or not a, uh, a certain technique that is now used by some in law enforcement where they um, are able to detect uh, the presence of drugs on a doorknob and uh, using that to determine whether or not uh, a certain residence is being used uh, to distribute or uh, drugs or drug deals are being made out of it. Uh, Founders certainly ever uh, comprehended the day when we would have the technology, and whether or not uh, using that type of a scope to look at for the presence of drugs on a doorknob should be used to justify a search warrant of that residence. You know, th- these are cases that we have to decide all the time, and... Uh, interesting, the vast majority of constitutional interpretations I have to make as a trial court judge deals with the Fourth Amendment and those types of search and seizures.
0: Mm. Let's take another break uh, when we come back. Uh, I'd like to get into uh, the the case uh, the Supreme Court has been talked about the most, um, especially around uh, this nomination fight. Um, liberals are, are fearing now that uh, Roe v. Wade may be overturned. Um, and uh, and then, of course, there's the, the idea of stare decisis, right? The, the uh, precedent, the, the power of precedent or, or not. And the, the court follows precedent uh, up until the time, in some cases when they don't. Um, so sure. I want to talk about Roe v. Wade. You, in the book, uh, Ted Stewart, you go back to 19- a 1905 case, very interestingly, and, and link that all the way up to Roe v. Wade. I want to have you retrace those steps. We'll talk about Roe v. Wade following this break. Ah, parenting. So much good advice. You know, you should never kiss your child. You should never hug your child. You should never put your child on your knee. I'm Stephen Dubner.
1: In the next hour of Freakonomics
0: Radio, we send economists into the cold, cruel world of parenting expertise. Turns out it's full of people who just don't know the data. Join
1: us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: This is Debbie Andrew, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Lucky Slice Pizza for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. What is it that can make hatred such a powerful force? I think hate can give aimless people Purpose. It can take a life of petty frustrations and setbacks that are suddenly externalized through hate into kind of grandeur and a sense of mission.
1: I'm Guy Raz, exploring the causes and consequences of hatred. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with uh, Ted Stewart. He's a senior federal judge in Utah, senior U.S. district judge, and author of several books, and the latest books called Supreme Power, uh, Seven Pivotal Cases that Had a Big Impact on America. Um, and we're talking about Supreme Court. Uh, just recently, this week, in fact, President Donald Trump uh, nominated uh Appeals Court uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. The nomination battle will be joined soon, and uh, we'll, we'll see what, what happens. We're uh, talking about the Supreme Court in general here and uh, this nomination in particular. If you'd like to comment, uh, love to get your email at upraccess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, uh, Ted Stewart, you talk about Roe v. Wade in in the book, and but you set that up by going further back to 1905, a, a case the Supreme Court decided about uh, working hours, I believe, for for bakers. Was it?
1: It was Tom. It, the case was Lochner versus New York. Uh, the question was whether or not the state of New York could dictate how many hours a week a baker could uh, um, allow. Uh, or or demand of his employees to work. And in that case, the the United States Supreme Court um, created, in in fact, what is is referred to now as substantive due process. Um, Due process is normally considered to be the the means by which decisions are made. But in this case, they they created a substantive uh, element to due process, and basically they said that there was a, a liberty interest That was possessed by employees, uh, liberty interests, which allowed them to contract with their employers to work as many hours as they wanted. Uh, In effect, they were defining what liberty meant under the Constitution, uh, giving um, yet the Supreme Court an, an amazing amount of power, which it then exercised over the next 30 years, primarily in the economic area. Um, striking down many state laws and some federal laws saying that, uh, no, that it infringed on liberty as we, the Supreme Court, defined it. In the 1930s, uh, late 1930s, with the Roosevelt uh, Court, uh, substantive due process was abandoned primarily uh, in the economic area, but it was resurrected again in a series of cases in the 1960s going forward where the Supreme Court gave uh, itself the power to define what liberty meant, um, primarily creating the, the right of privacy. It began with a, a case uh, where uh, Connecticut had had said that uh, contraceptives were to be limited in their distribution. Uh, the Supreme Court said that that was a violation of a privacy interest of married couples. And uh, the, the uh, ultimate was Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court basically said there was a, a privacy right that included the right for a woman terminate her pregnancy and substantive due process uh, was the basis for the Oberfeld the, the same-sex marriage case that I've referred to several times um, it, it is in, in essence uh, the Supreme Court or other judges saying I want to define what liberty means and in this case uh, it could mean the right to an abortion it could mean the right for a same-sex care couple to marry um, and it has been used in many other uh, similar cases. So it all began, though, with uh, the 1905 Lochner decision, uh, the the, the birth of of substantive substantive due process.
0: And if I remember my, you know, uh, constitutional law class, um, the, the justices who discerned this right to privacy um, talk about the what the penumbra of the Fourteenth Amendment, or the, you know, the, it's it's very much in the camp, isn't it, of the living constitutionalists. I don't know if an originalist would have come up with this. Uh,
1: they they probably would not have if if the Supreme Court, uh, nineteen seventy three, I think, was the year of, of Roe versus Wade. If the Supreme Court of 1973 had consisted of uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, etc., uh, they would never have decided the case that way. Uh, An originalist would not have. Um, one who believes in the living Constitution did. Um, and and it is interesting because Roe versus Wade, the actual decision, has been um, criticized severely by both those who are deemed to be conservative and those who are deemed to be liberal. The original Roe v. Wade decision, um, which which relied on a, an analysis of three trimesters and what uh, rights existed with a woman to terminate her pregnancy within the first trimester versus the second trimester and the third, and what interests the government, the state, had in, in, in limiting that right during each of those trimesters, that has basically been abandoned, and the Supreme Court has reverted to uh, a an analysis of, of whether or not a substantial burden is placed on a woman by certain legislative acts trying to limit abortion. So it's interesting that you can have a judge who will say that Roe v. Wade was was a bad decision, but yet like the outcome and support the outcome. So I think as as uh, your listeners may listen to the criticism of of Judge Kavanaugh during the course of his uh, nomination uh, uh, hearings that he may be, there may be some writings or some place where he's criticized Roe versus Wade. I think it will be important for the listeners to discern whether or not he is critical of the decision itself, which again, many on both sides of the political aisle have criticized. Or whether it is criticism of the right to privacy, uh, and I frankly don't know what his view on that is. Uh, I will be watching as well to hear what he has to say about that.
0: And of course, this is very high stakes. If you're, especially if you're pro-choice, um, if really? Ro- Roe v. Wade gets chipped away at, maybe this. Uh, and and some say, well, this shouldn't be at the court level. This should be state by state. But if you're pro-choice, um, your woman seeking an abortion, very, very high stakes because your state might outlaw abortion or severely restrict it, as as has been happening.
1: I think it would be very interesting if someone could could have done it, or could or would do an analysis of of what would have happened had Roe versus Wade not been decided the way it was. I think I think there's reason to believe that states would have liberalized their abortion laws. Um, much to the same extent that they are today, Roe versus Wade. Uh, I- I- again, as you correctly points out, if Roe versus Wade was overturned, if the United States Supreme Court said that there was no constitutional right to abortion, it then becomes purely a state by state matter. But again, <clears throat> I, do, I don't really sense that, that there would be very many states, if any, that would then. Uh, make abortion much more difficult uh, to obtain than it is today. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I I don't sense that that Roe v. Wade should be the the great litmus test that it has become, uh, purely from a judicial point of view. But I do fully understand that uh, there are many who do fear that outcome because of the uncertainty. They don't know. They would probably disagree with what I just said about what the states may or may not do. And I fully understand why they would why they would perhaps be worried.
0: Uh, of course, you've you said many have criticized Roe v. Wade. Uh, on the other side, of reverence for precedent. Uh, do you do you think the Supreme Court will, in the coming years, is it more likely, less likely, to overturn Roe v. Wade, or maybe more likely, you know, continue to, to carve out and 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 uh, shape that? Uh, uh, what the the rulings around undue burden, with with the effect of making abortion harder to get.
1: I, I think it it is, highly unlikely that Roe versus Wade would ever be overturned. Again, the essence of Roe versus Wade is that there is a constitutional right for a woman uh, to to have an abortion performed in limited circumstances. That's really what Roe versus Wade says. I think it is much more likely that your former statement is true, and that is the Supreme Court will continue to deal with these cases um, one by one as different states pass laws uh, limiting uh, the right to an abortion creating undue, undue burdens in the minds of certain litigants, and then those cases make their way to the Supreme Court. I think it's much more likely that it will continue on a case-by-case basis.
0: Do you think the, the current political process does that have any effect on how a justice then rules, how the court uh, then rules? In other words, do you think the Supreme Court especially looks at uh, the public opinion? Um, either, they're human after all, but uh, they're, they're supposed to just look at the law, right?
1: Well, that is a the theory. And the, one of the reasons why we have an independent judiciary, why we have lifetime appointments for judges and justices, is that. The founders intended that one of the three branches would not be, um, not would, would not respond to public opinion, would not be carried away by uh, an overwhelming viewpoint that the public may have, and in the end, they believed that that would result in greater protection of individual rights, uh, greater stability in government, and uh, in the long run, the, the prevention of, of tyranny by an activist minority or, or by a majority. That that was what the Constitution was all about. Um, I, I, I know that there are cases in in the history of the country where uh, those who have analyzed them carefully said that the Supreme Court did get swept away by what was going on in the country, um, were swept away by public opinion. And um, uh, I, I have no way to dispute that. Uh, as you say, the nine justices are human, they have to go home and confront their wives, uh, husbands, and children, and friends and family, and they have to explain or 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 respond to criticism uh, from people in the store, um, perhaps in their their clubs or their organizations or their churches, and and uh, you know they they don't welcome criticism any more than anyone else does. So the extent to which they respond to to a, a broad public opinion is is a very, very interesting question, and I think human nature dictates that uh, there's probably some of that uh, um, much more prevalent than perhaps the founders would have intended and perhaps many of your listeners would like.
0: Earlier in the conversation, you uh, talked about the political process in terms of if, if you care about the Supreme Court uh, Well, then, you know, pay attention to that. Pay attention to who you vote for president, for, for Senate. Um, and, you know, for some people, it's top of their list. It's the only thing on the list. For many others, it's, you know, it's one of many, and it's not... I wonder where you think people ought to be. Should should this be top of the list for people when they vote?
1: Well, if, if you believe, as I have come to believe, that the Supreme Court has... Has assumed a, a position in our in our form of government that um, was never intended, that vests in in myself and others too much power and influence um, in the judiciary. Th- then I think that those people should be very very active. Uh, if on the other hand, uh, looking back at uh, how the courts had made decisions and the decisions that that have been made over the, one's life, uh, they're comfortable with what has happened, then perhaps I can understand why they don't want any changes and they don't want to worry too much about it as as a deciding factor in a, a political decision he or she may make. So it really is, again, very subjective. Um, and uh, I, I understand fully that there are people on that spectrum. There's a lot of people in America today who... Who are uncomfortable with the prospect of, of a Supreme Court that might be more consistently conservative or originalist. Um, I also understand those who who believe that uh, the Supreme Court has in recent decades been too much on the other way and they desperately want it to become more dependable in terms of its originalist decision-making. Um, it's it's purely subjective and um, uh, people on both sides have good arguments and good reasons for the feelings that they may have and including you know the the uh, individual who sent the email that you you read uh, I understand the the, the concern uh, that that individual had about what what is happening and and how it's happening but uh, it also reflects that uh, that, in, that this interviewer who, who wrote the email fully understands the significance of the Supreme Court and I respect him for that
0: just have about a minute left, and I, I wonder you you spoke a little bit about what you're going to be looking for. I'd be tuning in with great interest to the hearings and the nomination of uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Um, wonder what you'll be looking for. Of course, the judge, uh, in in the fine tradition that's uh, we we have, will be trying to say as little as possible on certain issues. But uh, w- what will you be looking for?
1: Well, I. I... I think the thing that that I hope does not happen, and that is that, that this does not become a a, uh, a matter of, of destruction of the individual, the borking, uh, which I referred to earlier in our conversation. If if the the senators who are going to be questioning Judge Kavanaugh focus on his um, qualifications, uh, the uh, he he has I think three hundred opinions that he has written over the years on the dc circuit if they look at those and, and they find reasons to criticize his reasoning uh his uh, reliance on stereotypes and uh, whether or not he's himself is a conservative activist judge those type of of questions and concerns i think are very legitimate uh, i hope it does not become though a matter of uh, people looking into everything that can be used to destroy him as an individual uh, and harm his family. Uh, I hope that can be avoided.
0: well we'll be uh, we'll be tuning in with great interest uh, to the nomination process. Uh, we've been talking about the Supreme Court with uh, senior us. District Court Judge uh, Ted Stewart. His most recent book is Supreme Power: Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions that had a major impact on America. Judge Stewart, uh, thank you so much for joining us again.
1: Tom, it was a pleasure.
0: And uh, thanks for listening to Access, Utah. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time on Utah
1: Public Radio. If you enjoy tuning into my program Sunday Nights, then come join me at UPR's upcoming event, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue on July 29th. We'll listen to music from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band with Jim Schaub and Doug Jones. Come enjoy the evening with me and the rest of the UPR crew. And at the end of the night, get dropped off anywhere in Cache Valley from a complimentary ride
0: service. Head to upr.org for more details and to get your tickets. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.